Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Christina Skinner, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. We'll be discussing her article, Presidential Pendulums in Finance, which was recently published in the Columbia Business Law Review. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christina, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Andrew, on the podcast to discuss my work on the president's involvement in financial regulation. It's great to have you on the podcast. And perhaps before we jump into the weeds, could you share a little bit of your motivation for this project? What's the general idea behind it? Absolutely. So, you know, at its core, the paper is really considering some implications for the financial cycle, or sometimes referred to as the credit cycle specifically from presidential involvement in financial regulation and deregulation. And as I'll explain sort of at the end of our conversation, although presidential involvement in the administrative state is not new, there are new implications for financial regulation, given the extent to which Congress, at least in the Dodd-Frank Act and likely going forward, has delegated so much to the regulatory agencies and in large part due to the tremendous and growing complexity of financial markets. So just to give you a little bit of context surrounding the project, you know, I'm really bringing together a couple of different bodies of scholarly thought. And so there are a lot of interesting issues that are intersecting in this paper. So one body of literature is on the political economy of financial regulation, where Academics like John Coffey at Columbia Law School, Roberto Romano at Yale Law School, have all weighed into the conversation over the past decade. Another completely separate body of literature regards sort of separation of powers questions about who has the legitimate power to supervise or control the administrative state. And here we've heard from then scholars, now judges and a justice like Naomi Rao and Elena Kagan. And so what I'm doing in this paper is I'm adding a macroeconomic angle to these conversations. So drawing on expertise in financial regulation and law and macroeconomics, which is itself very much a growing field of business scholarship. And so I'll just you know, say that the core descriptive points in the paper concern how a president's control over financial regulation stands to impact the macro economy. And so the starting point is thinking about why it is that financial regulation is cyclical and how fast those cycles repeat in the ordinary course of things. In the paper, you talk about the pendulum swing of financial regulation. Of course, we can increase the level of regulation in the financial industry and we could decrease it. In general, how does that happen as a matter of process and political economy? And what actors, governmental actors, are usually driving those types of changes? So historically, you know, as you say, we've seen that financial regulation ebbs and flows in a cyclical fashion. And there does indeed seem to be some political economy explanation for this, as well as a legal explanation for it. So, you know, John Coffey developed this notion of the regulatory sign curve, which is to say that after some major financial crisis, right, like the 2008 global financial crisis, public attention 
on problems in the financial system are at a peak. In turn, this makes political representatives in Congress very much focused on the issue and passionate about showing their constituents that they're doing something to fix the problem, real or perceived, to prevent it from happening again, and even in some cases to punish or deter malfactors in the financial system. So as a result, you can sometimes, not always, see broad sweeping pieces of financial legislation after a crisis. Just to give you a few examples, right? So of course, there were a number of major pieces of financial legislation that followed the market crash in 1929 and sort of were responding to the perceived market abuses of that era. So we saw the Securities Act of 1933, the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934. You know, in the early 2000s, Congress passed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in response to public reporting and accounting scandals, Enron, WorldCom, Arthur Anderson. So that wasn't financial legislation per se, but it certainly imposed significant requirements on public reporting companies. And then, of course, we had the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 that followed in the wake of the global financial crisis. You know, we've got what sometimes has been referred to as crisis-induced financial legislation. Now, according to the sine curve theory, after a period of time, public attention fades and industry voices for regulatory relief become more salient and they become more persuasive in pointing out the various ways that legislation may have been mistaken or had unintended consequences or undue costs from overbreadth. So we may see some period of deregulation or tailoring take place. But usually, regulatory frameworks themselves can only turn over but so fast, because in order to implement the legislation, there's some amount of this back-end process that has to happen in the administrative agencies, at the financial regulatory agencies, to actually implement various parts of the law. Because what Congress is doing in any given piece of crisis-related financial legislation, like the Dodd-Frank Act, is that it's giving the financial regulatory agencies some power to make a law. It's delegating some legislative authority to the financial regulatory agency. Now, in the Dodd-Frank Act, many of those delegations were quite specific. So telling various of the financial regulators to implement a broad statutory goal or telling them that they could. So some of the rulemakings were mandatory and some were optional. So just to give you one quick example, right, Section 941 of the Dodd-Frank Act required that the SEC and federal banking regulators create a rule that would force securitizers to keep some economic interest in the credit risk that was associated with their securitizations. And the SEC promulgated this rule, which has familiarly become known as the risk retention rule, the skin in the game rule, right? Now, the process of rulemaking to implement a law, it takes time, it involves deliberation, and it's transparent. This is the crux of administrative law and how rules are made under the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. It's a very well-defined process with specific roles for Congress, the agencies, and the president. So after Congress gives a financial regulator the power to make a rule, that's when this process begins. And for financial regulatory agencies, it looks more or less like this. So first, the agency announces its intentions to create a rule, giving the public some opportunity to participate in the shaping of the rule. Formally, this is known as the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. 
Then the agency is going to make public the basis for its rulemaking authority, as above the piece of legislation, and it's going to explain its proposed rule. Again, the public has a chance to review and to comment, and all of these comments are going to be made public for anyone to see during this comment period. Again, formally, this is referred to as the notice of proposed rulemaking. After this comment period has closed, agencies issue a final rule, which addresses comments that were made to the agency, and it explains any changes it's decided to make from the proposed rule. Now, the buck stops with Congress, thanks to the Congressional Review Act, which is a law that was passed in 1996, and requires, generally speaking, that before any rule can take effect, an agency, any agency, has to submit a report to Congress with a general description of the rule, including some statement about whether it's likely to have a major economic or policy impact. Now, Congress can then decide to act and disapprove the rule if it chooses to, if it jointly disapproves a rule through a resolution, and the president agrees and signs the resolution, the agency can't pass another rule in substantially the same format. So note, in this process that I very briefly summarized, there's very little role for the president. And this is pretty specific to the independent regulatory agencies, which include the financial regulators, the Fed, the SEC, the OCC, the CFTC, the CFPB. These agencies are formally independent from the executive branch. So unlike executive branch agencies, like the Department of Labor or the Department of Justice, for example, the financial regulators' rules don't have to go through the White House for formal substantive review and cost-benefit assessments via the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or OIRA, as it's called. So it bears emphasizing here that the balance of power principles embedded in this usual manner of law and then rulemaking are key to understanding the frequency with which financial regulatory cycles happen in the ordinary course of things and why it is that they could happen more often if increased presidential involvement becomes the norm. You know, and the reasons are as follows. So first, the process I just described, Congress is very much driving the bus. Congress makes the law and specifies what precisely an agency can or must do to implement the law and see that its purpose is affected. Even with general grants of rulemaking authority, Congress is, or at least it should be, explicit about the boundaries of what an agency can and should be doing. And again, Congress can stop the process. It has ultimate oversight through the CRA. Again, there's relatively limited role for the president in the case of these independent financial regulators. So in other words, in summary, putting Congress in the driver's seat ensures regulatory cycles can only repeat themselves but so often. You discuss Congress and the agencies as traditionally being the driver and the co-driver in terms of financial regulation. What levers do presidents use to move financial regulation one way or another? And what's been the history there? They have a good number of levers, actually. And, you know, again, presidents, including Reagan and Clinton, were heavily involved in the administrative state. So it's not necessarily new. But the paper, for the purposes of focusing on sort of contemporary and future implications, is very much focused on what's happened since the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act in the financial regulatory space. And what we've seen since the global financial crisis of 2008 is that presidents do, in fact, have considerable power, both formal and informal, 
to alter this balance of power in the regulatory process and to enlarge the influence that the executive branch plays in regulation making. So I'll give you a few post-2008 examples going from sort of the most formal in a legal sense to the least formal. And I'll start with the ones that have been more deregulatory in nature, and then I'll describe the more pro-regulatory moves. So first, a president can increase or try to increase the role of the presidency within the formal notice and comment rulemaking process. So, for example, President Trump has tried to route the financial regulatory rules through OIRA for White House review. And again, historically, independent agencies haven't really had to submit their rules for OIRA review substantively before becoming finalized. An April 2019 memo from the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, did suggest that all agencies needed to funnel up through OIRA and really coordinate more with the White House. Now, I have no idea if the financial regulators are actually doing this, but it would appear that this April 2019 OMB memo was an effort or a signal that it wanted the independent agencies, including the independent financial regulators, to pass their rules through the president's doorstep as well. So second, presidents can have some influence in leveling down or up enforcement priorities. So again, these agencies are independent, but the president can appoint the head of an agency, which could, you know, in theory, take his or her foot off the enforcement gas, right? Effectively leveling down the stringency of any given piece of regulation or regulatory framework more broadly. And we saw this at the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, between 2017 and 2018, where there was really, I think, only sort of one enforcement action taken, which very much reflected the prerogatives of the acting head. Now, third and relatedly, presidents can play some role in effectively stifling or killing rules. And this, again, really works via control of agency heads. And the clearest example of this was with the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. And that rule would have required that all retirement advice, whether given by a broker dealer or an investment advisor, be subject to what's known as a best interest standard. This would have effectively hiked up the standard for some broker dealers that had previously been held to a standard that require advice be provided that's, quote, suitable for the client. So the president asked the labor secretary to review the rule. And then in turn, in reaction, the Department of Labor asked that the rules implementation be delayed. Now, of course, the Department of Labor is an executive branch agency. It's not an independent agency, but this effect had significant ramifications, the effect of delaying the rule for the market for financial advice. So fourth, the president can use the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC, to steer the course, the scope, and the severity of financial stability regulation. So the FSOC is a new body. It was created in the Dodd-Frank Act in large part to, among other things, to look for and then designate non-bank financial companies that were thought to be systemically important. So, for example, the big insurance companies, AIG, MetLife, Prudential. But for the past four years, we've seen the FSOC really pivot away from designating non-bank SIFIs and sort of the heightened regulation and supervision that that designation entails. 
and more so focused on making non-binding recommendations to other financial regulators about activities that the FSOC thinks could be systemically risky. Now, again, to be clear, the FSOC is not and was never intended to be independent. It's spearheaded by the Treasury Secretary, and so it's inherently and intentionally political. Nevertheless, it has created an opening for the president via the Treasury Secretary to, like I said, sort of steer the course of financial stability regulation because a designation by the FSOC does port a non-bank financial company over into the Fed's regulatory perimeter. Now, finally, we've seen that there can be significant power over markets in using executive branch agencies like the Treasury or the Office of the Presidency itself for information signaling. So during the early days of President Trump's administration, there were a series of reports that were authored by the Treasury examining various corners of the financial system, banks, credit unions, capital markets, asset managers, and fintech. And the general view of these reports was one that was inclined toward enhancing competition, innovation, streamlining regulation, and sort of sending a powerful market signal without necessarily altering any of the formal pieces of the financial regulatory framework at all. Now, to be completely clear, presidential involvement in regulation often but not always works in a deregulatory direction. President Obama's agencies also used sublegal tools to increase regulation. And perhaps the most well-known example of this was the use of sublegal regulatory guidance to ratchet up regulatory requirements. And a great case of this was the leverage lending guidance that was issued in 2013. And that guidance in broad strokes capped bank lending at six times debt to EBITDA absent regulatory review. Now, this was a pretty significant step forward for financial regulators to put caps on terms of loans between two private parties. This guidance was effectively exercising control over terms of private contract between two sophisticated parties. So one can infer that would have been it would have been terribly difficult to have marshaled this kind of rule through the formal notice and comment rulemaking which again is complete with public commentary and would have required the regulators to be responsive to those comments. All right, so with these examples of the various sort of levers in mind, I just want to stress a few things. So first, the concern here that's being articulated in the paper is not specific to regulation or deregulation or indeed the political party of the president. As I just explained, presidential power over financial regulation has been aggrandized in both directions under both administrations. In fact, now Justice, then Professor Elena Kagan, pointed this out in her 2010 Law Review article entitled Presidential Administration. She discussed how President Clinton, building on President Reagan's foundations, used the regulatory activity of the administrative state as an extension of his own policy agenda. So her paper really showed how presidential control of the administrative state and the marshalling of what's referred to as the unitary executive can also serve pro-regulatory agendas. 
Now, second point I want to emphasize is that, you know, the paper is not meant to be a knock or a criticism on the merits of any of these outcomes. You know, I happen to think that substantively, some of these deregulatory outcomes were Pareto improvements that that will lead to or have led to more socially optimal outcomes. You know, for example, I've written elsewhere that I don't think that the entity-based designation power that was given to the FSOC was well-designed. So my concern here is very much with the process by which presidents have been involved in financial regulation and deregulation and the pace that it's likely to create in the changing over of regulatory regimes. Are there any pragmatic consequences of this sort of presidentially driven regulatory decision-making that we should be thinking about or perhaps worried about? Absolutely. And I think, you know, pragmatic is really the key word there that I would underscore because a lot of the implications in the paper were very much policy oriented. So I'm really not trying to offer a commentary sort of on the legality of presidential involvement, but I'm rather making a macroeconomic point about what it is that Elena Kagan was referring to as presidential administration, again, in the specific case of financial regulation. Now, the biggest consequence of this kind of presidential control is that it stands to ramp up the speed with which regulation will be made and unmade. So where presidents have more levers to push and pull on the financial system and they're more inclined to use them with few constraints, we're likely to see these regulatory cycles come more quickly. And this is bad for the economy and it's bad for financial stability. Now, why is that? There are a few possible reasons. So for one, with deregulatory moves, this can create uncertainty and anxiety about the lasting power of changes in the regulatory framework, right? With pro-regulatory moves, we might see unconstrained hikes in regulation that can disproportionately hamper credit intermediation, capital markets activities that are all necessary for economic growth and economic resilience. In both cases, it means that companies, regulated parties, are more regularly having to adjust and sort of jerk back and forth in different directions. That is hard to plan for, that is costly, and it creates a lot of friction in the economy. It can also exacerbate the financial cycle itself. So we might worry that we'll see the frequency or the severity of the financial cycle, you know, the credit cycle, increasing alongside more frequently changing regulatory cycles. Now, of course, This could happen in the ordinary way of the regulatory sign curve changing over, right, in the way that it's usually and historically been pushed and pulled by Congress. But the basic intuition here is that if presidents are inclined to use these various levers at their disposal, many of them informal, again, the economy is going to adjust more often, and this is likely to be a painful process of frequent recalibration. And this pain is going to be felt not just in the financial system, but in the real economy as well. On the flip side of that pragmatic concern, are there any normative implications we should be thinking about? What does all this mean for the political economy of financial regulation? And are there key takeaways you'd like us to have from this paper and from this conversation? Absolutely. And, you know, this is sort of very much the shaping and the sketching out of work I plan to continue on and take up in the future. And, you know, I think for now, I think I'll just end with two or three normative takeaways for consideration. And the first is sort of very simply stated, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Again, presidential direction through various methods outside of formal rulemaking processes 
is not unique to President Trump's administration. It's not unique to President Obama's administration, but it stands to create a dangerous precedent of presidents being able to make an unmake financial regulation without ample deliberation and transparency. So again, just to give you the example of the leveraged lending guidance, right? That was created via guidance under the Obama administration, but it was very easily and quickly dialed back under the President Trump administration. Second, we might have a think, again, in connection with the specific claims in this paper about whether there's too much delegation of lawmaking power to agencies, right? And perhaps it might be worth putting a fine point on this for the financial legislation that I've discussed in connection with the financial regulatory agencies, precisely because of the impact that it stands to have on the real economy. If Congress were more restrained in how much legislative power it gave to the regulatory agencies, it would create fewer opportunities for presidents to shape or unshape financial regulation to the detriment of those markets that they're trying to protect in the first place. And, you know, I'm very sympathetic to Congress. They're between a rock and a hard place. Financial markets today are just so complex, right? Congress really can't write a risk retention rule or a derivatives clearing rule. They need the expert technocrats to do it. But this discretion does allow for and invite presidential maneuvering. Now, finally, you know, it might be worth asking, do presidents need more control over the financial regulatory agencies? If they're going to exercise this kind of directive power over the independent regulatory agencies and the rules that they're creating or haven't created, would it be better to formalize this relationship and reconsider the way that presidents direct or supervise the financial regulatory agencies, at least in certain well-defined scenarios. And I've made a version of this argument in another paper in connection with the Treasury's relationship with the Fed. And I do think the time is ripe for reconsidering sort of the executive branch relationship with certain financial regulatory agencies. Our guest today has been Christina Skinner, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. We've discussed her article, Presidential Pendulums in Finance, which was recently published in the Columbia Business Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Christina, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We'll let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.